This is Shelby Young, and you're listening to the Xbox Expansion Pass. Welcome one, welcome all to episode 156 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, recorded on Sunday, December 4th, 2022. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost. In this episode, we welcome two developers from Digital Clips on to discuss their latest work in retro wizardry, the Atari 50 Celebration. Prior to that, we'll briefly discuss some Black Friday sales and what just what value the Game Awards bring to the table. Enjoy. Yet another week of gaming is upon us and behind us. Welcome to XEP, discussing all things in the Gamerverse as they pertain to the Xbox ecosystem. And as I want to do each and every week, I like to start the show by offering words of kindness to those who have made my gaming week better. And this week, I extend words of kindness to Fun Speculation, aka Mav, over at the Xbox Ultimate Podcast. Mav was in my DMs recently and, of course, retweeting XEP and sharing it with others. And I just wanted to say thank you, dude. I really appreciate it. And rising tides lift all boats. And when Xbox creators lift each other up, it, it, it feels pretty darn good. So thank you, Mav. I appreciate you, and I hope you're doing well. Uh, guys, not a lot of news this week. Really excited for you to hear the Atari 50 Celebration interview. Uh, I had some trouble getting the levels even on that one, but the interview is fantastic. Over an hour plus of just the value of bringing retro games back and some of the magic they did to bring so many Atari games. It's like 103 games uh, in that collection. It's the 50-year anniversary of Atari. Even stuff from the Jaguar, which was wild to me. I'd never actually seen Jaguar games. Uh, and... In bottom line, it was just really cool to hear how they created games for this. They had several games that were uh, fantastically created using Atari like technologies. Vector Sector is the one that's like super, super cool. Jeremy Williams was on the podcast. He's the creator of that particular game, as well as Stephen Frost. He was a producer there. Uh, the stuff that they share with us was just really, really cool. And so I hope you guys enjoy that interview. Uh, and, and not a lot of news that I'm really throwing around this week. And I, I postulated a hypothetical over on Twitter. That's kind of like the main thing that I was thinking about, but not too much for me at the moment. Uh, right now, I want to talk about Black Friday sales. It was pretty interesting to me to find out that uh, reports indicated that the Nintendo Switch was down year over year, but became the best or was the best selling console in the UK on Black Friday. But it was followed really closely behind by the Xbox Series S and X, uh, which, of course, that, that likely has to do with a lot of the promotions that were going on with the Series S. But it was impressive to me to see xbox ahead of playstation in the uk sales for black friday that's been a notoriously playstation dominant area of the world uh, and it's nice to see xbox kind of making its way into a competitive state there uh, moreover because they don't have a lot of exclusive stuff and we just saw playstation release god of war ragnarok which by the way i have finished i have a lot of thoughts on god of war ragnarok Granted, I don't travel the PlayStation spaces, but if you're a PlayStation creator and you want to talk Ragnarok, I'd love to join your show and just throw some ideas in, around out there. Uh, I will get ahead of the real quick one. I don't think this one is as good as 2018's God of War, and I, this is not my game of the year, but I'm really glad I had the game, the the Ragnarok experience. So it goes. Now, back to some of these sales. Uh, interesting to me 
to find out that Xbox took 40% of console sales in the UK on Black Friday, whereas the Switch took 42 and then the PlayStation was uh, 18% of Black Friday sales over in the UK. What's so fascinating about that is I wonder how much prices versus availability played a factor in that one. Certainly, Xbox has done a good job during the chip shortage of chip chip shortage of making their console available. But I have to wonder just how much the 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 stock values or, or, or the stockpile surplus, the availability. Man, I can't talk today. The availability of the console played a factor in this one. But I loved the Black Friday deals. I loved the the pack-ins, the pricing. To me, that's the right price for an Xbox Series S. I hope they do that again one more time prior to Christmas just to help out people who are doing their holiday shopping. Uh, and ahead of 2023, where it's possible they have to raise their prices. Uh, so as many people that can get their hands on an Xbox console ahead of all of the exclusives that are set to come out in 2023 and beyond, uh, I would would really like to see that happen uh, for sure. But bottom line, I'm I'm impressed. And uh, shout out to Sam Tolbert over at Windows Central for compiling a lot of that data from GameIndustry.biz and otherwise. Uh, that's where I snagged that one. And and I love Sam. Sam's just a genuinely great dude. It was also interesting to watch the reactions to Callisto Protocol and Midnight Suns reviews. A lot of people had a lot of different thoughts on those games, and it was interesting to me to watch people that were really diehard Callisto prior to launch find out that it was kind of a buggy mess to play despite being beautiful and kind of getting sevens or so. People were suddenly saying things like, well, seven's not bad, and it's like, yeah, I've been saying that forever. I'm the guy that enjoyed Anthem, Avengers, Gotham Knights for what they were. I don't think a game needs to be a nine for you to enjoy it, uh, and I've caught in a lot of flack over the last few years of loving games that range from you know the five to ten range, because I just love double-A experiences. I talked a lot about Darksiders uh, in the XCP shorts a few days ago, and I got a lot of private feedback from people that love Darksiders. That was really cool to see people coming out of the woodwork hey hey luke i like darksiders also really love genesis uh god of war or uh, <laughs> the the darksiders one was my favorite no darksiders three was my favorite darksiders two was my favorite and and hearing people talk about the different uh horsemen of the apocalypse was really neat and as i played god of war i kept thinking darksiders so it was cool to to kind of see that happen and then to find out people are loving evil west and sonic frontiers as well as jumping into gotham knights it's it's been really really nice to watch uh people kind of find out the game that they wanted is good, not great, and kind of opening their minds to other good games. Uh, I'm the guy that loves to play games for what they are, and so it was a fun thing for me. I am sorry to those of you that were diehard wanting Callisto to be the best game ever, but what you have, I believe, from what I'm able to observe, I've not played it yet, what you have is a double-A game that's trying to punch above its weight, and bravo to that team for doing that. Uh, as far as Midnight Suns is concerned, uh, like Callisto, didn't land a review copy, wasn't going to spend my money on it. I've got a lot on my plate anyway. But I was watching the coverage and the information about Midnight Suns, and frankly, it looks like a mobile game to me. People are loving the the combat in it, but really dismayed by a lot of the the other aspects of the game, the relationship building and whatnot, because the writing is so terrible. And when you couple bad writing with some really bad visuals, I think, in, in Midnight Suns, uh, it is it is wild. But it's almost like a tale of two games, right? If you're watching coverage, there's a lot of the story-based stuff that takes place in an abbey that is just graphically terrible. It looks 
worse than a mobile game in some places, uh, kind of a mid-tier 360-era game. And then there are other parts of Midnight Suns that just look beautiful and amazing. Uh, and as I watch it, I can't help but think, I would like the combat aspect of this, but none of the other stuff. And I was watching, I believe it was Skill Up's review and then ACG's review as well, and seeing some of the conversations and the writing for those characters, really, really bad. Not good at all. And, and disappointing, I think, because... You know, you have so many good superhero games that are out there, especially on the Marvel side. To find out that Midnight Suns is disappointing on some levels, kind of a bummer. By the same token, I've just got done telling you guys I like the sevens. I like the 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 sixes when I know what they are. I like the eights. And maybe Midnight Suns is a game for me when it goes on sale, right? And if it is, rock on. I think a lot of people are going to have a lot of fun with it. But the conversations that I've watched between Evil West, Sonic Frontiers, Callisto, God of War... Uh, all kind of surrounding this culminating in Midnight Suns, it's been like, all right, it's nice to see that some people are realizing a game doesn't have to be perfect for you to have a good time. And uh, none more than God of War Ragnarok has has taught us that one uh, for sure, for sure. Uh, Guys, the Game Awards are coming up, and... I caught some flack on the on the old Twitterverse. By the way, you can follow me on Twitter and Hive at InsipidGhost. I know Hive's doing some revamp of its security, but you can follow me there, InsipidGhost on all platforms. I, I said that, we, well, we got news that the Game Awards would be shorter this year, which is great news, by the way, because that's become a bloated mess. Despite some of the good stuff that comes from the Game Awards, it's become really bloated. And I tweeted out that awards are more valuable than the trailers. And I think I got... Uh, I, I got misunderstood because I worded it poorly, but I really think we don't do a good enough job at the actual game awards of recognizing the talent behind games. And a lot of people came at me and they were saying things uh, logically to the effect of that's I'm not interested in the awards. I'm more interested in the trailers. I want to see the game reveals. And yes, 100%. I get where you're coming from. I'm with you on that. I'm stoked to see Jedi Survivor, which is going to be there. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that I really love about the game awards. We saw the Series X. We heard the Anthem Choir. I mean, there's some some dope stuff that comes from being revealed at the Game Awards. But to me, hearing and seeing the teams get their recognition and celebrating people that make games is important. And if you listen to this show, you know how much I enjoy interviewing people and finding out their loves and their passions and how they bring games to gamers. And I, I want to make sure that we as an industry don't leave that behind. And so that was what I was really stressing over on socials. And it maybe didn't come off that way because I wasn't saying I want to get rid of of the trailers. I, I love that stuff, but I want to get rid of some of the bloat at the game awards. I want to get rid of that, that extra 14 commercials for the same game over and over again. Uh, it, it's a big chance for gamers to unite around celebrating people, but in the industry, but award shows are important because it, it, it lets us celebrate the talent that brings stuff. So I want a balance of that with less bloat and fluff. Uh, I'm told they're giving away steam decks. Goodness gracious. I want a steam deck. Oh, I might have to fight for that one. Cause I, I want a Steam Deck more and more now as I've, I've become to play Vampire Survivors on my on my phone with touch controls, which, by the way, works fantastically. And I'm thinking I need to get in on that one for sure. But yeah, I just want to make clear, I think it's important we celebrate games and the people that make the games, not necessarily just look ahead to the future. That's what I was trying to get at anyway. Well, guys, let me answer one question from listener mail this week. This one comes from Mr. Rune Telvik. He says... Todd Howard's interview made me jump back into Skyrim and man, it still holds up. In your opinion, what about Skyrim makes it such a timeless game? What's the magic there that they were able to capture with Skyrim? Do you think that Starfield will have the same longevity or do you think the way we play games today has changed too much for a game like Starfield 
single player open world to keep players coming back again year after year. Good question, Rune. I, I think Skyrim is special because there were so many chances to be the character you wanted to be, so many ways to to play in that world. It had a very similar mantra to Sea of Thieves in the sense of tools, not rules, uh, but it was focused in a single player fantasy environment. And I think there are plenty, there's plenty of room for those kind of games today. I absolutely hope Starfield is that game. I'm not hyped for Starfield right now because it's not my type of game. I like action superhero-y type stuff where you can you know, be overpowered and whatnot. But I mean, I've had some good fun with a lot of games I didn't expect to have fun with this year, especially. And I'm stoked for the Witcher's next gen update. That's probably going to be my next one after God of War. I don't know, Red Dead 2, maybe. I still want to finish Evil West. But a game like Starfield is special. It comes once a generation, once every two generations. Uh, If Todd Howard's team can have evolved and taken in the lessons of Skyrim, but also seen what Cyberpunk and The Witcher 3 are doing, seen what God of War and Ghost of Tsushima have done, seen some of the storytelling of other big games in the fantasy realm have done and evolve, I think you've got something special on your hands for sure. So my hope is that Starfield is is just top tier, super fun gameplay uh, because I'll be in there for sure, for sure. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to 2023 and what Xbox has to offer. Um, but then also, like, I'm excited for Diablo, right? Like, I, I didn't think I'd be excited for Diablo. I am. I want to see what the next chapter of Halo really means. And I think you're going to get some news. <clears throat> cough, cough, hint, hint on that in 2023 and pretty early in the year. Anyway, um, I've kind of bumped into some news lately quietly. I'm not a leaker, but I get to I've found some cool stuff out of late. So that's been kind of fun. I think you're going to enjoy the Game Awards, Xbox fans. You've got a small exclusive on the way. You've got info about some of the bigger stuff um you're gonna get some good things at the game awards but nothing major that i know about right the other stuff's set to be early 2023 that you find out so we'll see all right guys that's gonna be it for me uh like i said short piece from me today i hope you have a fantastic week enjoy this interview with jeremy williams and stephen frost from digital eclipse please show them some love check out the atari 50 celebration the cowabunga collection Digital Clips, they are masters and masters of retro wizardry. Have a great rest of your week. Take care. Well, I am very excited now to be joined by Stephen Frost, head of production for Digital Clips and a producer on the Atari 50 Celebration, as well as Jeremy Williams, an engineer on the project working at Digital Eclipse as well. Gentlemen, thank you both for joining me. Oh, thank you for, for having us. I mean, it's it's great to be able to take a pause and you know talk about uh, this release that I think the entire team is very proud of and fortunately is... I think getting the, the the nice positive reception that we hoped it did. So yeah, thanks for having us on. Nice to meet you, Luke. It's so grateful to have you both. And Jeremy, it's nice to meet you as well. Uh, you kind of alluded to it there, Stephen. The Atari 50 celebration, it's out now and getting uh, just heaps of praise from collectors, from new players. 103 titles, if my counting is correct, uh, and reviews just raving about your work. Uh, you said you're proud. What was the feeling like when you guys started to see those reviews trickle in? I mean, speaking for myself, it's, you know, it's one of those things, situations where you tend to, and with any game development, you tend to oftentimes see the the broken parts, right? Or the, 
the the issues with it and things like that because that's what you focus on especially the tail end of a project and you get so submerged that you don't you kind of lose sight a little bit of the overall picture uh sometimes and you know you you hope that your decisions and stuff uh that you make are the correct ones you know based off of informed decisions and sort of the the group uh, consensus in some ways and then you kind of throw it out there in the world and you you know, you, you sort of hope for the best knowing that you you think that you have something special and the intention is to deliver something that is different. Um, but sometimes, you know, that messaging doesn't get out to the public. They don't necessarily get what you're trying to do um, or they only get part of what you're trying to do. So the moment we started seeing some of these reviews where people were saying, oh, this is a very different approach. You know, we went into this thinking that it was just going to be a normal kind of quote unquote ROM collection. And it's very different, you know, from a pre presentation perspective, uh, from the aspect that we try to focus on the context and give sort of a reason why these games are important and why Atari is important and sort of make it an educational experience that is also fun. And so when you see these people calling out these bullet points that you, uh, you know, wanted to try to get into the product and they get it and it resonates, then um, I think that really clicks uh, with you and you feel really good that like, you know, you've done your part because it's like, you know, this is what we tried to make and people understand what we're trying to make and they appreciate that. So at least from my perspective, that's that's how I sort of took it. And it was very heartwarming. I mean, initially right out the gates, uh, even the early people who got copies of it for reviews, they were hitting us, you know, they were texting us and slacking us and and Twitter, uh, you know, tweeting us on the side and kind of saying like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm working on a review of this, but like, man, this is something special. And I think once that kind of hit, that I think made me feel very proud of our accomplishment and really just proud um, of the team. Uh, I'm not sure how Jeremy approached it, though. <laughs> um, it, there was like one day during production where I, I look back on as a really important day, given like how the reviews have enjoyed the the timeline aspect of the product. And that's, um, we used to have this main menu where you would decide whether you wanted to go to the history section or you wanted to go and play the games. And mm -hmm. there was, you know, sort of like a hub. And then one day, I, I think it was Chris Kohler said, why don't we just drop you into the timeline? Just let's, let's make that the main menu. That, that's the starting point. And that was such a good decision given how people have responded to this because I've been surprised how many people have been enjoying the games through the timeline like they'll go through the history and they will jump to play the games and then return back to the context where they you know are, are learning about the the history of atari and, and where they existed in you know the history of video games as opposed to you know the rom collection that steven mentioned that you know we're, we're kind of accustomed to where you have this collection of games and it's all about the games making the focus about the history i think is what really resonates with people and I, it's the kind of thing that we as a company have strived to do um, year after year. And I, I, I think we really, you know, we're all really happy with where this resonated and where this landed. It was really cool for me to look at at the coverage of it. And of course, we've had Steven on the show to talk about the Calabunga collection. And uh, that to me was a fantastic collection of games and what you guys did there with, with a lot of aspects. And it feels like despite it being a collection of titles, I'm seeing like an evolution of digital eclipse in the way you guys are presenting things as far more than just ROMs. It feels like you're taking us to school with like an interactive documentary in some ways, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, I mean, for sure. And I think the key thing, while there is definitely experimentation and changes to our approach to to how we release these sort of collections or celebrations, um, you know, it, it's it's really adding tools to kind of our arsenal. Like even if you started way back in the day or in the in the recent generation of digital clips, which is probably the start of Mega Man Legacy Collection, mm-hmm. you can kind of see the evolution of of the things that we do and and changes to stuff, but not necessarily like a complete change. Like we've added tools to the repertoire. You know, we've added, you know, uh, rewind in the early days and we added watch movies and we added this, you know, concept of, of integrating sort of the, the, the galleries and behind the scenes content in a more meaningful way, instead of being separated. Um, we've taken stuff online. So we, we've kind of built this toolbox, I think, and we'll continue to build this toolbox that allows us to, when we approach an IP or a concept for a release, to really think about what pieces of the puzzle make sense, right? Um, we knew kind of going into Atari 50 that there have been a variety of releases in the past uh, that are great. And they've also reinforced that through the re-releases of their flashback you know, hardware mini consoles. Mm-hmm. So... This wasn't the case where, like in Calabunga Collection, where these games haven't been released in a, in a modern form in a long time, right? These are things where a lot of these games, or a good chunk of these games, have been seen some years back and have been played on mini consoles over and over again. So we knew that the games couldn't be the spotlight, right? Mm, okay. um, like turtles could like turtles is like is 100 like the nostalgia of playing these games oh i remember playing that as a kid right mm-hmm. and you haven't really seen them in that form since then uh, there hasn't really been any sort of major classic tmnt release or collection in the last while um so that's a point where like it makes sense to make the games the center of attention that's where the nostalgia comes from but for atari 50 especially due to the fact that this is the 50th anniversary of Atari's sort of existence, um, it made more sense to tell a story about the company and use the games as a tool to tell that story versus focusing on the games wholeheartedly. And that comes from a a variety of reasons. One, the one that I told you where like these games have, a lot of these games have been re-released before, but also secondarily, um, they, they they sometimes are games that most people, especially in a modern climate, have no interest in personally, right? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people aren't going to go out and play Minor 2049er or, or whatever, uh, you know, just on the whim because it's available and they're interested. Um, so the key thing is to kind of inform people why it's important for them to to check out these games and to learn about the context and the situation that they were released in and why they are the way they are. And I think when you do that, um, it gives another level of self-appreciation for the art form. It kind of gives games, you know, especially classic games, this level of respect that they should deserve because that's Mm -hmm. where the roots of where we came from, right? Like many of the games and experiences we have now sprung from those early concepts and game ideas and even if you aren't or weren't around for that genesis of that stuff understanding where this stuff came from you know 
can, is impactful in some way. So I think those are some of the, the sort of the situations that we learned and thought about in relation to Atari 50. And I think the, the big thing about this celebration, like I said earlier, and adding a tool to our repertoire is like, oh, yeah, if we were to focus more on the context and the quote unquote museum content behind the scenes materials instead of the games, what would that look like? You know, and could we use it in future stuff? And and you know, and and that's sort of where this kind of grew, uh, grew out of. And so, you know, I think there is an organic growth path that you can kind of certainly track through the digital clips stuff. Um, but it's, you know, it's not the case where like, oh, necessarily the next release could be exactly like, you know, this celebration where the timeline is the focus, right? Or a company is the focus. Um, there's plenty of situations where Cowabunga collection sort of scenario could make sense, right? But it's nice to be able to have this sort of foundation now that we can build upon uh, in future cases where it makes sense to do that. So That's super interesting. Now, you touched on a couple elements that I'm going to loop back to. Uh, one of the listeners, Famous Seamus, wrote in, and he wanted to know how you show people who don't necessarily appreciate the value of Atari, how do you, do you teach them the value of that? And I think you touched on that a bit uh, but one of the cool parts about this beyond just the timeline are some of the materials that you included to, to really get an idea of the zeitgeist that's going on at the right. time for these things. Can you talk a bit about some of those materials and how you did show value of the company in its time, the goods and the bads? Sure. Um, you know, obviously with every digital clips release, you have the standard, what I call the cost of entry just to get a digital clips release, which is kind of like, you know, what is ephemera? What is what are the ads? What are the what are the physical media that were out at around the same time that talk about the games that you are spotlighting in the collection, right? What is the behind the scenes artwork and concept art and things like that? So at, at a base minimum, you need that stuff just from the standpoint that like people are curious inherently about how these games are made and what influenced these games. Um, and then you you kind of build upon that in situations where you can, like Cowabunga Collection, we are able to get access to uh, a, like, I don't know, like a thousand or so, hundreds and hundreds of, you know, design documents and sketches that had never been seen before. Konami went into their vault and dug all this stuff out. And it, it proves invaluable because now you can go in and you can kind of look at these napkin sketches and see how they evolved and changed into what the actual games are and so that gives you know certainly a, a lot of context as to what is the progression of development how these games got made and why decisions were made and what decisions were initially thought of but rejected in the end um, so i think that kind of helps to educate players and, and folks in general about like you know why the games are the way they are you see like why is this enemy like this or why is this level like this? You know, you can get insight into that from these behind the scenes content. For Atari 50, we felt that since so much time had sort of passed, since a lot of these games were developed and released, it was important especially to not only get the traditional behind the scenes content and materials that we would normally get, but that it was also important to bring in the original team members and developers who were at Atari at that time in order to tell their stories and to give their own personal insight into why these games are the way they are, why they were made, what the, 
sort of working environment and, and situations were at Atari at that time, what the world climate was at that time. And I think getting this sort of material and sort of information directly from the horse's mouth, if you were you know, to say that, is way more valuable than trying to interpret that, you know, from reading something else or things like that. This is literally the original people telling you um, about this. And that's why it's so important for us, like when we can, to get that sort of insight, like, you know, going back a few years to the Disney classic games sort of collections where we were able to interview the original Aladdin team members, right? And why they sort of came up with the decisions that they made and what things that they wish that they could fix. And what sprung out of that organically was us going in and fixing all of the stuff that they talked about that they didn't have time to fix. So sometimes when you bring the teams in, you get these little surprises or ideas or nuggets of kind of cool, um, you know, cool features that you can add. And so that's why it's such an important part of it. But in the relation back, jumping back to Atari 50, we just wanted to hear it from them themselves, where they could paint a picture of why decisions were made, you know, what they loved about the games they worked on, and, and things like that. So I think that sort of modern sort of telling of and reflecting back on the history of Atari from the actual people who were involved, along with sort of all the traditional materials that we tried to collect, helps to sort of bookend uh, sort of like each the narrative of these stories. Now you have this the physical artwork and the flyers and the manuals from the past, coupled with sort of this modern retelling of you know why these games were important, why I should care. So I think that sort of all encompassing. Uh, design helps to really paint a, a broad and, and in-depth picture of why people should care about this stuff. That's hey, so Luke, I just wanted to ask real quick, what was your first console? When did you become a gamer? I became a gamer uh, probably, so this is a fun story. My mom was trying to get me to shut up one afternoon, um, <laughs> probably in the late 80s. I was very young, and she pulled an Atari something out of her closet, and I played Empire Strikes Back. Um, snow speeders, pixel, like very pixely graphics. Um, and I was hooked then on the idea of gaming, but we didn't really have the money to, to go in on it. And so it wasn't until I see, I guess my grandfather gave us a Nintendo entertainment system. This was when we, the Nintendo 64 had come out, right? That was when I got to start playing games at home. Gotcha. Yeah. See, I've, I've seen a lot of people who were kids in the nineties, uh, who still appreciate the Atari 50. And I'm, I'm really intrigued by that because what it tells me is it's not just a nostalgia play. You know, it's not just like it, it's only going to appeal to people like myself who grew up with this stuff, but that there's this act, there's a hunger for knowledge about games history and game development history and the industry history, which in many ways the, you know, the history of Atari is. And, uh, and that's something that I loved hearing. I, I, I think that, education about the game's history and game development in general is it's just been really really poorly tapped i think that that's something that we want to do more of and i'm really glad to see that there's this interest in it yeah 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 and, and sorry to, to riff off of one thing that you know jeremy said that i think as developers we appreciate is that we spend a lot of time sort of living in the past you know looking at these games playing at these games understanding how these games were made and what the sort of context around them 
is. And it actually helps us as developers educate us on why things are the way they are and what good things resonate throughout time. And I always kind of say this, you know, when you go back to a, a very basic game, especially in the early days of Atari, there is no smoke and mirrors to that experience. There aren't fancy FMVs or, you know, uh, particle effects and, and things like that. It really is all about the moment to moment gameplay because the player had to fill in the gaps with their imagination. So if the moment to moment gameplay didn't hook you, then that was it, right? You lost the player. Um, mm -hmm. There was nothing else to sort of grab their attention. So there's something magical about that and the whole brilliance of how you design a such a simple experience and make it engaging to people. And if you can learn that and sort of master that, you can extrapolate and build that to a bigger experience that is even more compelling. And so I think, and I think I can speak for Jeremy and the rest of the team too, is that by our investigations of going through these collections and celebrations, we learn so much ourselves and i think it helps to improve our skill set as a you know game developer especially for future projects see that's so cool to me because i'm looking at uh all the stuff that's included in and, and i'm listening to you guys talk and one of the neat things about this from the interviews that you guys have included to even the information about products that never came out is the depth that people are able to go in and I'm curious if you think the amount of time that has passed since the, the I guess, the events of, of Atari's rise and fall at various points, the amount of time that's passed, does that allow you guys an easier time to kind of explore the, the goods and the bads? Because they're not necessarily playing to a certain, you know, sales angle. You know, like if you were to ask Xbox about their history, they may or may not give you everything. Whereas I think in Atari's case, maybe you get right. more. Yeah, but Microsoft is still Microsoft. They're still the same Microsoft that released the Xbox. This is not the same Atari. Like mm. it's un it's under different hands now, and the people who are running that company now they appreciate the you know the fact that the the company has been through ups and downs, and they weren't managing the downs. So we might as well you know keep it real. Otherwise, mm. people call you out on it. It's a it's a much smarter move, I think, to to be real about your history, especially when it's so interesting. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. so you're able to glean more from them, you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we were, when we invited the people to come in for the interviews, um, they assumed otherwise, they assumed, I assume you want me to sanitize everything and, and, you know, give you the, the company, you know, keep it, you know, light, uh, in terms of the, the down parts of the company. And, uh, and the, you know, our editor who conducted the interviews, Dan Amrick, said, no, we, we want to hear everything, good and bad. You know, don't censor yourself. And that was liberating to them. I don't know if they've done interviews like that before. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that was absolutely a good experience for everyone involved. Yeah, I think I think that is the benefit of like this new generation or new group at Atari, um, because obviously they are focus and obviously want to maintain the respect and admiration that people have for Atari and educate people about the history of the company. This is sort of like now a focus on where does Atari go from now? Like, right. What is the future of Atari? Mm -hmm. And so I think due to that, we had a lot more flexibility and freedom, such as the things that Jeremy talked about that we may not have gotten if, the same people working there, you know, or like the regime hadn't changed in, in a long time um, because, um, you know, it allows us to get 
the trust of a new group and it allows us to have a bit more honesty and truth in how we present things, right? Um, mm-hmm. Just like Jeremy said, we don't have to sanitize this stuff. Um, they want the whole story of Atari, you know, the bad parts and the good parts. And, you know, they trust us to balance that out, right? And just be truthful about it. And that was that was a nice place uh, to be in. You guys cover so much history uh, in, in this compilation that you get a number of different consoles. And like, when I think about the Atari Jaguar, I didn't even know that was a thing when I was a kid until well after its life cycle. And it was hidden behind something else at a KB toys. And I had never seen a Jaguar game ever played before to my knowledge, I suppose. Uh, And I'm curious if you could talk a bit about kind of each system as you got to approach it as from an engineering standpoint, from a presentation standpoint. Uh, And then I'm just curious if the Jaguar was unique to you guys out of that one, or if it's just kind of my own, you know, timeline experience. I mean, Jeremy, I don't know if you want to jump in with what you can with that. I'll let you, and I can chime in off of that if you want. Um, well, the Jaguar is certainly the most challenging. I mean, I don't know how much you like. If Very Jaguar <laughs> wasn't wasn't on your radar in the '90s, it probably wasn't on your radar in 2022 either. But it was a uh, it's a console that has never been very well emulated, and mm-hmm. so our, the um, the engineer that took that on his name is Rich, and he did an amazing job with that. And uh, he he would tell you that it was a uh, it was not easy. Like it was a struggle. There's a lot of really difficult timing things going on from an architecture standpoint inside the inside the Jaguar that required, you know, a lot of work, especially getting it up and running on the, you know, lower powered systems at 60 hertz. And so that was definitely um, a challenge. And and he rose to it and did a great job on that. Um, the other, I mean, there's so many emulators in the product. That's the newest. But I mean, every arcade game is essentially its own emulator. Uh, you know, and we have uh, the 2600 and 5200, 7800 uh, Lynx, and am I missing one? Yeah, the Atari 800. 800. Yeah. Um, and yeah, everyone, we have emulator engineers who were responsible for each of those. And, uh, you know, we just work closely with them to get everything running as, as well as possible for all of the titles that we had included. Uh, but, it, you know, it was, it was a huge, <laughs> huge team effort. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's, it's a lot of emulators, it, you know, going to back Luke, to some of the points you're talking about, like, this is the most emulators we've ever had in a collection with many of the, you know, with many of them new to us, and some of them being built, you know, from scratch, basically during the time of development. So it was a huge, a huge undertaking. And even something as you know, people take for granted, because they see 2600 games a lot in releases. And they're like, oh, 2,600 games are easy to do. Everyone sort of does them. Um, but if you're coming fresh to tw- into the 2,600 world, and you're trying to emulate it, there's a substantial amount of work that has to be done just be- even from the perspective of the switches, the, you know, the, the, the physical switches on the console. Mm-hmm. You know, because based off of the combination of the switches, that triggers the game mode that you're in. And some of these games have like 50 60 plus modes that you have to figure out what they are um you know what the mode actually is and present it in a way that is easy to digest for players right um you know what do you mean by modes i guess i'm speaking from ignorance because i didn't have an atari 
Wait, so, when you bought an Atari game, the cartridge itself, you know, it cost what fifty bucks or something like that. And so on the front of it, in order to make it more appealing, they would tell you how many game modes were included, and they called each of those modes a game. So you know, Asteroids has like over sixty games in it. Um, and so you would select the game that you want by flipping a switch on the 2600. That's game select. And it would cycle through them one at a time. And you would have no idea what mode it was unless you read the manual to find out, you know, okay, this is two player with fast asteroids and, you know, and UFOs, or this is invisible asteroids or whatever the different modes are. They have all these permutations. So what we wanted to do, you know, one thing that we did, which Stephen was alluding to is we basically describe each of those modes and allow you to select them from a menu just so that you don't have to, you know, memorize the manual to find out what your different modes are. Man. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot of work. Jeremy did a lot of work on that. Um, and so you think about it, you know, when you have 40, 50, 2600 games and each one has 20, 30, 40, 50 permutations, you can understand like the work involved in making sure that all those modes are working properly, describe them properly, right? It's a lot of work. And so people automatically just take the 2600 for granted because they've seen a lot of 2600. But just us getting in the door and getting to that point took a bunch of engineering effort. And that's just one platform, right? Then you, fortunately, the other platforms don't have a lot of the same option situations as the 2600, but they're all handled various aspects differently you know the arcade just as like jeremy was talking about the arcade games are very much their own kind of emulator separate emulator that you have to deal with most people just group them together like arcade emulation but you know that's another dozen or so um different emulators that you have to deal with so there was a lot of work just getting the emulators all working and accurate especially jaguar which took all the way up to the very end to get to a point where we we're happy with the sort of accuracy of it and also that it worked optimally enough to work on switch, right? Because you have to keep the switch in mind for everything. Mm -hmm. um, so you have to make sure things work on that. So it was a huge undertaking just from an emulation. Even if we didn't do the timeline work, which was a, a staggering amount of stuff, just the emulation work alone and the, and the amount of engineering and effort needed to get all that stuff working is far greater than any past collection we've ever released yeah so. from an input input standpoint like you got the jaguar controller which basically has a huge keypad on it tons right. of buttons on it you have the atari 2600 had analog paddle games and then you have arcade games that have like infinitely spinning spinners like tempest or major havoc or you know you have knobs for like more like the paddle like breakout games or warlords and then you have games with analog joysticks like food fight and you have all of these different things that all have to work on a gamepad. And so they all have to be, you know, distilled down to gamepad controls in a way that's intuitive and plays the game as good as possible. So like, for instance, on for Tempest, which is an incredible, you know, timeless arcade game, but you play it with a spinner in the arcade. We wanted that to play as good as it possibly could on gamepad. And we were struggling with that until one day, Mike, our... Um, our president, Mike Micah, said, why don't we try something no one's done before, which is we'll slow the player down when they're firing. And there'll be an option you can turn off, 
but it's what we ended up with as the default. And I think it plays extremely well for GamePad. It's the kind of thing that the designers probably would have done had that been their native input device. Man, that's wild. So how... All I can think of right now is just how much testing you guys have to do in order to you tell me certain games didn't feel right or like you were down to the wire on certain elements and release or, you know, Mike Mika's bringing up the the changing the speed of the player. You guys must have to test this constantly. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a there's a staggering amount of iteration like, you know, Jeremy, Mike, others just sitting sitting at the desk just adjusting controls for one game like all day you know all day long like trying to get it right and fortunately sometimes we have reference like we have an arcade downstairs that we can rely on and go test stuff or we have folks who have access to certain hardware that we can get um information of and things like that but it is a it is a lot of games and getting the controls feeling right uh, to each of them was a monumental sort of undertaking. And, you know, the key thing too is that you don't just want your interpretation of the controls to be the only viable option. Our big thing is that we want the ability for people to adjust aspects of these experiences that and cater them to the way that they want to play. So, you know, Jeremy and Dave, like they they put in all the, the customer, you know, being ability to customize the controls, like fine-tune the analog sensitivity invert the analog uh you know directions um everything down to even like the amount of glow that's on the vector games is you know if you want to adjust it to be brighter or lower like that's an attention i have to say that's an attention to detail that you rarely ever see in games in general these days it's like a staggering amount of of attention to detail and it allows people to fine-tune and play it the way that they want to and experience Atari 50 the way they want to, which is the whole, you know, if it's like the whole main reason about the Atari 50 and the key driving factor is that you can jump around, you can digest stuff as you want to in any way you want to. You can play these games any way you want to. Um, you know, if you if you want to play with touch controls for the platform support, you can play with touch controls. You know, if you want to on PC, utilize the Atari VCS uh, classic controller with the spinner handle, you can do that. Um, you know what I mean, so I think it's it's one of those things that get lost on people because a lot of people play these um, sort of releases and even ours in a very normal way, which is like, okay, I just have a standard controller. I just play it with default settings and things like that. So they miss out a lot, I think, on all the work and effort that goes into all of the options and flexibility of settings that you do have to fine tune the experience to the way that you want to play. And I think that's a testament to the entire engineering team, engineering team, especially Jeremy, Dave and Jason, who like just spent so much time on that stuff. Yeah, for Xbox, there's or Xbox controllers, I should say, because why not put it on PC as well? There's a 3D printable paddle adapter <laughs> that Mike um, designed based on some designs that were on Thingiverse, where you can basically convert an Xbox gamepad into a 2600 paddle controller. So it's perfect for playing games like Warlords and Breakout if you have an Xbox 360 or one controller. Well, that's just insanity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that, that's Mike. <laughs> Man. Okay. Okay. So... To have all of these variations of controllers that you have to deal with across releases, 
uh, and all the testing that you do. And like you're talking or you talked earlier about having to program for the switch and it's different power levels. And then you have the different controller input methods that come with a switch, with a PlayStation, with an Xbox, with uh, a PC and the variation, you know, the controllers you can get there. Does that factor in at all? And then sub question, uh, does the nature of all these emulated titles with their fine tuning, does that negate the ability to say play it on the cloud or does that make it more, more complicated with touch controls? Um, I'm speaking out of ignorance. So, you know, take that how you like it. I mean, I can speak the cloud stuff. I and mean, we've done some cloud stuff. Um, we even released a Mega Man Legacy Collection on Lua for, uh, for Amazon. And um, I'm inclined to blink, uh, think that like it's, it's oftentimes tough for these sort of games that are designed around low latency and instant responsiveness, you know, um, especially any sort of platforming element and things like that to sort of stream it over the cloud. I mean, I assume that if you had a really good internet connection and low latency, the experience could be good. But when you get down to like these older school games that don't, you know, and never compensated for latency or any sort of that input lag and stuff like that, it's a little bit tough, I imagine, to, to, to try to, to play it in the cloud. Um, and I mean, we don't really worry about that from the standpoint that like, we're just focused on trying to reduce the latency, uh, input latency and everything that we can do, um, to make the experience as accurate to the original experience as possible. Like regardless of sort of the controller setup that you have, we try to make it the best experience, um, as, as possible. Does that, uh, suggest that you guys would be averse to certain types of cloud releases and you'd rather it be kind of like a, a local thing? I mean, I, I, from my perspective, uh, I tend to, to think that depending on the game, but that's not to say that all sort of, sort of classic games from that era wouldn't, uh, play well, uh, in the cloud. I, I think it's more of like that, the stuff that requires instant response times and things like that. And it could be a little bit challenging, but there's a myriad of other games, you know, in that era that, that could totally make sense that, that, you know, don't involve split second timing uh, and, and situations like that. So I think it just depends on, you know, the type of game it is for me personally. Gotcha. That makes sense. Um, I do want to ask Jeremy a bit about his creation because one of the cool things about Atari 50 is that it includes uh, a new title. Jeremy, you created Vector Sector and uh, I'll leave it to you to share just what the game is and, uh you know, where, where you were at in terms of creating it and including it. Sure. Uh, to be fair, Atari 50 includes a few new titles. It includes Neo Breakout, Quadra Tanks, Haunted Houses, and well, there's a there's a Yard's Revenge reimagined or enhanced. Um, but yeah, in addition to those, I made one called Vector Sector. And the way that it worked was the engineers involved in the team early in the project, um, while the editors were out compiling all of the story assets and timeline assets. We had some time on our hands, so we um, developed our own games that were inspired by classic Atari games. And my choice was to do arcade vector games, uh, make an homage to those. And initially, I didn't know what that would be. But um, it ended up being a uh, you know an imagining if some of the most famous Atari vector games all existed in the same universe. So I took Asteroids, um, Tempest, uh, Lunar Lander, and then some games that Atari no longer owns the rights to, but absolutely developed in our part of their history, 
and I made it sort of an homage to those on the this planet surface. So you evolve from one to the next. You start out in asteroids. It then then when you finish the wave, the camera pans out or pans back, and or zooms out and, re and reveals that you are above the lunar lander planet. And then you go down on the surface, and then you blast off into hyperspace, and you're in Tempest. And it loops around, and it becomes more involved each time through, with difficult, more difficult enemies. And it was a blast. It was an absolute blast making this game. I mean, I, these are the vectored games that I grew up with. You know, when I was less than ten, I would be in the arcade playing these games. And and in my, to my mind, in my, to my eyes, like these games are timeless. Um, and I, I honestly, like, I feel that way, I think objectively, because vector games have a look that raster games don't, you know, it's like they're almost high definition HDR, you know, from, from the 1980s, like it's, it's, and even like late seventies in terms of asteroids and lunar lander, like amazing quality graphics where the, where the electron beam didn't scan scan lines, it would actually draw shapes on the screen. And so you got these vivid, you know, bright lines with this glow around them and it was just this cool look that they stopped making you know in the by the like early to mid 80s they just stopped making these kinds of games and i always loved them so i i made this homage to them and i'm real happy with it it seems like it's resonated with a few people it's not the easiest game i'll, I'll admit but it's uh i i think i hope that the challenge is worthwhile and it makes you want to keep coming back that's cool that's cool. So tell me what you learned uh, as far as creating a game in this way that you didn't prior to the project. Oh my gosh. I mean, I mean, I, I don't personally like our, I learned how to do very basic 3d rendering like the Our, our engine, the game engine that we design all of these in that the timeline that the Atari 50 is built in is called bake sale. It was developed from scratch by our CTO, Kevin, and it's an amazingly fast, efficient machine at doing what it does, but it's a 2d game engine. So in order to do the 3d elements, like on the planet surface in my game and, and Tempest, I had to learn how to do 3d rendering from you know, a very basic wireframe level, like what they were doing in 1980. And that was enormously thrilling. Like I, I thought I would get some help with that from some other engineers, but of course nobody has any time. So mm -hmm. I just spent a lot of time on Google, spent a couple of weeks learning how to do real basic you know, 3D rendering with wireframes and how to clip things to a camera frustrum and get things working in a way that really people don't have to do anymore because the GPUs on consoles or computers they do a lot of this for you you give it the you know your models and your data and it will generally you know generally like uh you know handle some of this stuff so we we basically made a, a software 3d render for that game and and that was a huge that was a lot of fun it was really challenging and not something i i thought i'd ever be doing um but in also in terms of like just the the graphics themselves making the vectors flicker and glow and sort of have this judder that, you know, I spent a lot of time staring at, <laughs> at real vector games. And uh, I kind of, I wanted to emulate the look as much as we could on an LCD monitor. And uh, so, so spending a lot of time tweaking those, you know, settings, getting this phosphor effect where the things move on the screen and they leave a trail behind them. Um, lots of little details that we spent tweaking that we were then thankfully able to bring to the arcade games because we'd had this technology. So we said, well, maybe we can draw the, the the real arcade games using the same tech 
And to a large point, we did. We ended up porting a lot of the vector sector drawing technology to Tempest and Major Havoc and Asteroids and Lunar Lander. And that was like that was really gratifying too. Yeah, and I and I think, you know, Jeremy did a phenomenal job with Vector Sector. And I think what was cool about this project that isn't normally the case with a lot of our projects, because we don't get a chance to create new games all the time for them, is seeing how each of the team members you know, what their sort of perspective on Atari and what their experience and background with Atari was, and then allowing them to go off and kind of build what they wanted to build. And obviously, Jeremy uh, was was fascinated and enamored with the whole vector kind of design of the early arcade games. Uh, you know, Dave Reese went off and he worked on Haunted Houses because he was a big fan of Haunted House and wanted to do sort of a modern, you know, spiritual homage to sort of that. But the big thing... I think uh, that he did was finally finish, you know, the fourth game in the Sword Quest series um, with Airworld. And for those who don't know, uh, Sword Quest series um, has been, you know, for the 2600 back in the day, um, the four games were originally announced uh, back in time, but only three of them were ever created. Uh, the fourth one never got made due to basically the industry crash and, and other situations and problems going on with Atari at the time. So it was announced, but it never got created or released. There were just some initial notes and information uh, that was revealed about what it was going to be like. So I talked earlier in the podcast about like the trust that Atari had with us and this new uh, generation there who were trying to you know, take the company to the future and while still being respectful of the past, but them trusting us enough to, to go off and create what is the final chapter of Airworld so many decades later um, was really sort of wonderful. And, and what's neat about it, just like Jeremy went off and really spent a lot of time staring at <laughs> Vector Arcade games and things like that, you know, um, Dave spent a lot of time with Mike Micah, like understanding how the original hardware worked and how to create a, a, a sort of a, a, a game, a new game, based upon the limitations of that hardware. So again, it's 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 a fun, interesting thing because we learn a lot along the way. In some cases, like Jerry mentioned, the technology or the skills and knowledge that he finds or they find, you know, building something can be used in other stuff and just raises the quality of the whole collection in general. But, you know, from my perspective, I just loved everyone going off and being able to create experiences that really resonated with them and and you know, dependent on sort of their background with Atari, just like Jason created Neo Breakout because he loves that sort of experience and wanting to create sort of a modern interpretation of that. So um, from a producer perspective, being able to give the team the ability to kind of exercise their creative juices and create something new and compelling that sort of linked to the past was really just exciting to watch and see unfold. Yeah, and we got to have, as you know, some of the original Atari devs come through the office. Right. And and we had Todd Fry come in, who was the SwordQuest developer. And uh, and Dave got to show him <laughs> Airworld, which was this really surreal moment that Dave, you know, he, he says to this day, for some reason, he just wasn't nervous. And yeah. uh, he uh, showed him. And I, I have this great picture I took of Todd with this huge grin on his face, watching Dave demo this game to him. And I, I'm just, I still have to imagine what that must be like, you know, for like, what are we like 40 years after that game right. is supposed to come out 
he's what he's like seeing someone else have, having made it or having made a ver- their version of it anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I just think that that's that was a really nice moment. Yeah, that was an see, amazing moment yeah. to see we could bring that kind of joy to the people that we're directly, you know, celebrating. And and we went around and showed like Atari had a reunion. We went around showing the game to folks there. We had people come in and check out it. And and the sort of warmth and sort of happiness and appreciation that those people had for what we were trying to accomplish, even if the fans out there, you know, didn't take to it as much as we as, as they did, just the amount of sort of genuine sort of appreciation and thanks that we got from the original Atari teams and members was enough. You know what I mean? Like, wow, we made, you know, we did them proud and we delivered on, you know, what they would uh, do. And that was, that was amazing. That was an amazing time to get that. How long did you guys spend, or how long is this, has Atari 50 been in development for you guys? Uh, I mean, it, it sort of just, heavily kicked off earlier this year i mean some of the work for the bonus the reimagined games like vector sector and the other ones had started last year um just sort of as a transition between a project that was done and we are transitioning to atari 50 so i think some stuff was started in late of last year Mm -hmm. um but i think the bulk of it the really official ramp up of starting it was earlier this year does that mean you guys collected all of these like interviews and arranged all of those within 2022? That seems yeah. like a lot of work for a short amount of time. It's an it's a staggering amount of work. Uh, yes, we we did that, and and that's again. I mean, thank you for calling it out because most people don't understand the significance and the amount of work. the The amount of work on this celebration is, is and I can't. It's staggering. <laughs> It's immense amount of work. And the only way that we could have gotten this to this level of quality um, is that everyone in the team was wholeheartedly invested in making this the best thing that they could make individually. And that, you know, all that water rises all ships, right? And when Mm -hmm. you have everyone who's wanting to personally put in that 110% to get that quality there, the overall product is going to be amazing and so right off the bat yeah dan dan amrick who who came in um at this early phases of this project like really he we hired him he came in and right off the bat he had to hit the ground running to interview these guys like almost instantaneously and kudos to him he did an amazing job with drew to like come up with the questions to interview them to get the info out of these guys who aren't you know haven't done interviews in, in a long time and working together as a team to sort of put together the story and the videos that are in this celebration uh, was a monumental undertaking uh, just in itself. So yeah, I mean, to your point, it was, it was a lot to do in a very short amount of time. I'm, I'm curious now about the, the other games that were uniquely built for this product. Will you guys, do you anticipate rather seeing them released separately or will they always be a part of Atari 50? Um, I mean, that's that's a tough question. That's more of a question for Atari. I could imagine maybe in the future they could be released. Um, actually, uh, Jeremy worked with uh, with a guy to um, create a arcade cabinet that actually had Vector Sector and Quadra Tank in it that we took down to uh, California Extreme, uh, the sort of the arcade pinball show 
that happens once a year. Um, but uh, so there actually is a physical manifestation of Vector Sector and Quadratang in an arcade cabinet um, that exists. Cool. That exists. Um, as far as like releasing them separately, um, I don't know. I mean, I could totally see that at some point in the future, um, or even like you know, you dream of things like what if we took all four you know airworld games now and put them together with a lot more context behind them and you know what can we find more about that and you got an airworld uh, sorry a sword quest kind of release or you know with a new game or something like that but you know that's more of a atari's thing to to worry about uh you know i'm sure we'll discuss with things with them in the future but at least right now we're still just kind of focused on you know fixing bugs and getting the vcs version out and done and you know our work people have gotten it but our work on the project is not done we still work are working a lot on it to try to improve things fix things and add more features so i i know i do want to lead in on that topic because i know you guys are doing quite a bit but i do want to pause that thought for just a moment because and perhaps this is anecdotal steven so so correct me if i'm wrong but uh Sonic Origins, Sonic Mania, the Cowabunga Collection, Shredder's Revenge, the Mega Man Collections. It feels like like retro games, older games, gaming history. Uh, and I'm thinking about Xbox as well and some of the things they've been doing as far as preservation. It feels like people are interested to go back and experience older titles, see f- polish, and that emulation technologies are coming a long way. Is that my anecdotal experience or are you seeing that on your end as well? I mean, I think to a degree that you're right. And I think there's a couple points to that. One is as games have become more complex and bigger and open world, um, you lose a lot of folks who don't necessarily want to spend 50, 60, 70 hours on experience. Um, There's a whole group of people who just want to, sit down with their families or the kids or whatever and just have a fun simple experience that's easy to pick up you know you can play for a few hours and and call it a day and so i think there's a big a market for that um i also think that depending on the ip you know you can reach a, a much larger audience and bring those classic experiences to them like cowabunga is is a perfect uh example of that you know up until cowabunga you know, we've had we've had a lot of success, but they've been in very specific sort of genres uh, that are combined, like Street Fighter and the Mega Man uh, group is like you know hardcore sort of platformer sort of situation, or SNK, which is like sort of classic arcade stuff. And we kind of started to reach a little bit more of a mainstream situation with Aladdin and the Lion King. But the difference there is that those are very classic games that a lot of people know, but it isn't like they've continued to make Aladdin and Lion King games since then. You know what I mean? There haven't really been new Aladdin and Lion King games since that time period. So you're kind of locked into a certain time frame. However, for sort of Cowabunga collection, yes, those games are still from a certain era, but Turtles games have continued to be made. Uh, new animations and cartoons have been made. And so every generation has been exposed to TMNT. They know it in their own way. It's not something that has been released in the past and then disappeared. Like literally every generation has their TMNT experience and resonates with it in some capacity. So when the Cowabunga collection sort of came out, it blew up like crazy um, because TMNT is such a broad IP. Like I said, it resonates with multiple generations. And even if the games are more from the early era of it, 
they're still uh, fun and engaging and easy to pick up, which I feel is also why Shredder's Revenge did so well. You know, it captured that classic experience of the TMT games, uh, modernized it a bit, but still kept that very easy, fun to pick up and play sort of experience. So, um, and I think the introduction of Cowabunga and the release of that really introduced a lot of people to not only digital clips, but also the fact that, wow, there's this whole classic kind of game, retro game aspect that um, I haven't been aware of, uh, didn't know about, and interests me now. So I'm sure it brought people into the fold on that. Um, but you know, to circle back, and I'm not sure if Jeremy has thought this, but I do feel that like as games continue to get more complex and deep and you know games with services and you need 100 hours to complete something you lose a lot of people who just want to have a simple experience that they can play by themselves or with their kids or with friends and i think this classic arcade style experience really caters well to that and i think that's why you sort of see a resurgence of interest in in classic kind of game experiences so cool jeremy what do you think man i concur 100 percent <laughs> um, I mean, there's there is a console uh, called the uh, Intellivision Amico that um, we, we were kind of you know big believers in, and and still you know hope one day comes comes around to being released. But what they were trying to do that we believed in was sort of bring couch co op um, back to to be like the primary selling point of a console, and and we we really love the idea of smaller games that bring people together to play cooperatively. That's one reason why all the games that we developed uh, for Atari 50 are co-op. Every, every one of them can be played or competitive. They can be played multiplayer. Um, I think by, by and large co-op as well. Um, but yeah, that's just something that, that is a part of our DNA from growing up in the eighties. And uh, absolutely. I, I think that the smaller games and not just from the nostalgia standpoint, but from the the shorter gameplay loops and mechanics and skill based, you know, gameplay is uh, is appealing, and it's the kind of thing that, yeah, you, you don't get in in a seventy dollar fifty hour RPG epic. It, that that's its own thing, and that's amazing too. But sometimes we just want you know something a little old school, and and I for one am am all for it. Agreed. Agreed. And I love the variety. I like that they're all available because I'm sometimes I'm not ready for that God of War Elden Ring experience. And I just right. want simple, simple, fun, turn my brain off and have a blast. So I um, mean, like Vampire Survivors is a good example of, of another element of that, too. You know, modern implications, but it, the visuals are very simple. And that's kind of 100 percent, 100 percent. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're all playing that around the office. And that's a great example. It. Yeah, that's a great example. So cool. So cool, um, guys. I have to open the door to talk about you. You mentioned that it's in, that Atari Fifty is an ongoing project for you guys. You have more stuff on the way. You have uh, new things kind of coming down the pipe for that game. Uh, I'd love to open the door and hear what it is you guys are are working on in respect to Atari Fifty. Yeah, I mean the big focus for us right now is twofold. One is getting the VCS version out, uh, and we're trying to get that done as quickly. Um, as we can it is a new platform for us and atari has been wonderful but you know it's it's always a challenge uh when you're trying to develop for a new platform regardless of what it is can you and explain so, what vcs version is to, oh to i'm people? sorry yeah sorry so uh, i think about two years ago a little bit less than two years ago um, atari actually released a 
a console uh, of their own called the VCS. So it's sort of an homage to the 2600 um, platform from the mm-hmm. from the past, but it's sort of a modern kind of uh, PC um, slash console. So it is completely owned and run by Atari. They have their own e-store and things like that. So if you're an Atari fan, you have that. You can go grab all of their recent releases, um, individual games, and, and things like that. So they have basically their own sort of console experience, just like a Switch or anything else, uh, or an Amico. Um, so that obviously is a very different platform than any of the other console platforms, and the way that you create experiences and games for them is is different. Um, and so we are currently trying to finish up the last bits of getting that version done so that owners of that platform can enjoy Atari 50 um, as well. So that's basically um, what the VCS is. And then uh, secondarily, we are working on a patch uh, slash update for the other versions of Atari 50 as well, that obviously we've been paying attention to what bugs and issues people have been um, having since the launch. And we're trying to address as many of those as we can um, we also are adding uh, additional features such as dip switch settings when relevant for the arcade games because that was sort of a big thing that popped up that people wanted to uh, be able to adjust. Um, so, you know, that made sense. It was a bit of work for sure, but we are going to be adding in dip switch settings um, as a additional aspect of the update when it comes out. So hopefully people will dig that. Um, the other big thing that we are including is, um, and you know, this will only really cater to Jaguar fans who know this, but um, when they re- originally released uh, Tempest 2000 for the Atari Jaguar, um, Jeff Mentor, who was the developer on that, um, included sort of a uh, beta-ish uh, support for uh, um, rotary controls, a spinner, mm-hmm. and... Um, and no, no such controller got released for the Jaguar. However, the homebrew community and fans of the Jaguar being what they are, um, there was a, a large effort to create and attach a spinner to the Jaguar controller. Um, and you can actually buy them. So they're either attached to the bottom of it or they replace the D-pad. And basically you can go into Tempest 2K and using the second controller you can activate this mode i think it was the second controller if i remember right um you can activate this mode that supports the analog uh spinner so um unfortunately jeff never got to finish that um before he it got submitted and released and so there are some aspects of it that don't quite work well with the analog controls specifically things like entering your initials in the high score Uh, the bonus stages and things like that. So we've gone in and tried to fix all of that as best that we can, thanks to Rich's help. And we've implemented the support for that analog control uh, for Tempest 2K uh, in the upcoming patch. So there's that. And then also we've added for Tempest 2K, because that is sort of the definitive Jaguar game that everyone loves to play and appreciates. And we're also adding a sort of accuracy versus a sort of boost 60 frame per second mode for the game so that if you want to play it more accurate to the to the original jaguar experience you can but if you want it uh 
sort of in a more optimized, uh, you know, speedier sort of version at 60 frames per second, you can actually do that as well. So that's some of the key features uh, that we're adding, along with sort of a myriad of different fixes and adjustments um, and things like that to try to try to improve the product in general. That's awesome. That is cool. Well, uh, Stephen Frost, Jeremy Williams, I have to thank you both for offering your time today, being willing to come on and chat, uh, especially on a Friday afternoon, gentlemen. Uh, I appreciate you guys so much, and I, I can't wait to see what's next for Digital Eclipse and for you guys. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you uh, so much. Um, it, it's always great to be on these things. Um, I will say this and, and do a shout out to, um, you know, for folks out there who are interested in Digital Eclipse or you know, want to learn more uh, about our products and future things, please do go to the digitaleclipse.com website and sign up for our newsletter. Uh, I'm not saying anything about the future, but uh, when you sign up for the newsletter, people have been known to be getting free games that we have done specifically for the newsletter team. So we released a game around Halloween, um, and then we also released a game uh, slightly before Thanksgiving. So um, I don't know what other holidays might be coming up, but maybe there's something for that as well. So um, like I said, if you're interested in what we do, uh, if you want to learn more and perhaps get a free game out of it, uh, that is uh, sort of a classic arcade experience themed around the holidays, uh, definitely go to our website at digitalclips.com and sign up. But thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks, Luke. Yep, no problem, guys. Any socials you guys would like to plug? Um. Yeah, I mean, like I said, we, Digital Eclipse is at Digital Eclipse uh, on Twitter. I'm at Frostman007 due to my fondness for James Bond. Uh, Jeremy is at Jerware uh, on Twitter. And um, yeah, that's basically it. 